And good morning again. It is good to be together as we do every Sunday. I miss not being here uh, last week. We went up to Minneapolis to Nisa's wedding, so I had a good time reconnecting with family again, but it's also good to be back. Turn, if you would, with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we will begin in verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would help me this morning. That the words that I say would be faithful to the scripture, would be faithful to the Lord Jesus. I pray if there is anything that would be said an error that you would correct that in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it. I would above all just ask that you would take me out of the way of the message, that the word of God would speak, that the Lord Jesus would be honored, for I ask it all in his own name. Amen. In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, I won't turn there, uh, but you can look it up later if you want. It's uh, story that I'm sure uh, many of us are familiar with, we read about a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus to dine with him. Now, I think some of it was uh, uh, perhaps social status. Here's this, here's this uh, uh, new uh, phenom that's coming on the scene, and, and uh, uh, we want to check and see what's, what's up with this guy. And he's, you know, he's kind of the happening thing right now. And so he invites him to, to his home. And while he's there, and we read that uh, he is reclining at the table, a, an unnamed woman from the city comes in. She's only identified as a sinner. And she comes in and says to his feet behind him, and she begins weeping. And, and her tears falling on Jesus' feet, and she's wiping his, the tears from, her feet, from his feet with her hair. And Simon says to himself, well, if this guy really was a prophet, 
I've heard about this guy, but if he were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus, knowing what he's thinking, responds to him. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, say it, teacher. He says, a money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And then when he turned to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my, for my feet. I lost my feet. No water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Another illustration I heard uh, recently, and I shared it this morning. So those of you who are here there during the first hour, you can kind of tune out for a little bit, because you've already heard this. Just don't snore when you do. Um, suppose you run into a friend who uh, tells you, you know, the other day I was in your house, and uh, I, I couldn't help myself, but I saw the, the bill for, uh, for AMU, your utility bill, uh, your electric bill sitting on the table, and, and I know it's none of my business, but I went ahead and paid the bill. You'd say, oh, that's, that's, that's nice. But again, suppose that you were a person living in an impoverished country, you yourself being impoverished, and you learn that you have a condition that requires a very, very costly surgery without which you are certain to die. You can't afford that. But somebody in your village hears of your condition and he sells all that he has and pays for your operation. What is your response then? Both are acts of kindness, but one comes with very little cost to the person, while the other, the person literally impoverished himself for your sake. What is your response? This lesson this morning in 1 Thessalonians closes out uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. I've enjoyed studying this. I pray that it's been a blessing to you as we've gone through this. And one of the themes that uh, we see throughout the, this uh, first letter of Paul to the church in Thessalonica has been the imminent return of the Lord Jesus, the work that he has done, and the fact that he is coming back. And from the very first chapter, Paul commends this church. In First uh, Thessalonians 1, uh, the second part of verse 9 and in verse 10, he commends them that they turn to God for, from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
And in our last lesson, as Paul was addressing the future hope of our resurrection, encouraging and comforting those who were so concerned about loved ones in the Lord who had died before the Lord returned, would they share in the eternal life that, that, he, that he would bring? And he assured them. He said, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. In other words, in light of the immeasurable, costly, indispensable grace of God poured out for us in Jesus Christ, what is our right response? I think Paul addresses that here. What is our response? And so as he closes out this letter, he closes it out with encouragement on how to live life in light of this wonderful grace poured out for us. And in view of that hope that we have of the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've, I've entitled my message, uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book many years ago, said, How Then Shall We Live? And somebody else wrote a book, I want to say it was maybe his son wrote a book, saying, How Now Shall We Live? How now shall we live in light of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us? And so this morning I want to look at this passage and suggesting four headings as we do so. I'm going to spend more time on the, the, first, the first point, the first heading, the corporate life of the believer, the individual life of the believer, what I'll call the dynamic life of the believer, and the power to live the life of a believer. The corporate life, the individual life, the dynamic life, and the power for life. First, let's look at the corporate life of the believer. In verses 12 through 15, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. When I was younger, I heard the phrase, I can still remember the first time I heard it, I don't remember how old I was, but no man is an island. You're familiar with that phrase. But me in my young mind said, where is this island named no man? What, what is it? But, you know. I also wondered when I was, you know, five years old, why everybody was concerned about this gate that was on some river somewhere. And those of you who know what happened in 1974, you can imagine what, what they were talking about. What does this gate on a water have to do with anything? Ring any bells? Oh, come on. Watergate. Thank you. Thank you. In my young mind, why are people talking about this gate on a river? That's, that just didn't make any sense to me. Where is this island named No Man? But of course, as I got older, I understood that our lives are truly never lived in isolation. We may think they are. We may think that what I do, and the world would like to say that, that what I do has no impact on anybody else. That could be 
that couldn't be farther from the truth. Our lives impact others' lives just as others' lives impact ours. And this is especially true of the church. And there's a reason why Paul uses the image of a body in 1 Corinthians 12 when when he speaks of the giftedness of all believers. So we're indispensable to one another. We can't do without one another. We live together in a body. There is a corporate life of the believer. And long before COVID drove millions to interact over online platforms such as Zoom or Google Meet, I remember we had friends who never went to church. They were believers, claimed to be, and they gave at least two excuses. Well, every church had some kind of shortcoming, which made them not want to go there. They finally did settle on a church, thankfully. The second one, they, well, well, we can watch it on TV. That gives us what we need. We'll watch the 700 Club, which I wouldn't advise that at all, but... Um, But church was never meant to be this way. Church is not an individual sport. Even when I was in high school and I was uh, uh, in athletics, I was a gymnast. Not a very good one, but I was one. Um, It was an individual sport, and yet, you really couldn't do it without the support of the teammates around you. And in many ways, that's what it is like for the uh, for, the, for the church. As the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he wrote, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage one another. And there is a day that is drawing near. And it's closer today than it was back 2,000 years ago. And we have no idea when this day is coming, but sometime in the future, I believe that it would be in my lifetime. But even if it's not, then that is further grace, further time for grace for the Lord Jesus to draw more people to himself. But there is a time coming. So let us be about encouraging one another stimulating one another to love and to good deeds. And so as Paul addresses this issue here that the, that the Lord's return is coming soon and, and encouraging them in how we live our lives and thinking about the corporate life of the believer, I submit that he addresses two, two things here, two subheadings, if you will, living under the proper authority within the church and living with each other in the church. The first thing that he says is to appreciate. He says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And so as Paul writes this, he identifies a class of people within a church with three distinguishing characteristics. There are those who diligently labor among you those who have charge over you in the Lord, and those who give you instruction. It's the same word that's, uh, that's uh, translated to admonish. And I think some translations, I think maybe King James uh, uses admonish there. Um, and think about this. Those who diligently labor among you, within any organization, there are people who will distinguish themselves through hard work and dedication. 
and this is especially true and necessary within the church. In Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy in First Timothy five and seventeen, he notes that they noting that they diligently labor. It's the same language used in First Timothy. He says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard. That's the same word they use there. It's diligently labor at preaching and teaching. These are the people who labor to weariness for the sake of the body. They're giving all for the body, for the Lord Jesus, for the church. Appreciate those respect those, honor those. These are also the same ones who have charge over you, who instruct you, admonish you. And that word there that, that Paul uses and he tells his readers to appreciate, that's, uh, that's how the New American Standard uh, renders it, is literally to know. And I think some translations do, do render it that way. Know those who diligently labor among you. Others say respect. Others say honor, recognize. And I think one of, the, one of the key ideas here is to recognize as probably one of, the, one of the best renderings. Notice those who are doing the work described here, diligently laboring, exercising authority, giving instruction. Recognize them and in so doing, honor them. And then he goes on, he says, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Recognize their work, and in so doing, esteem them highly. How do we do this? How do we esteem these people? How do we honor these people, recognize these people? I'd like to offer a few suggestions as regarding those who have authority over you, who have charge over you, recognize that this authority ultimately comes from the Lord. And it is to the Lord to whom they are responsible. In Acts chapter 20, as uh, Paul is preparing to go to Jerusalem, and he, the, he calls the Ephesian elders to himself. And in verse 28, he tells them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is a work, this is a position given to them by the Lord. And in Hebrews 13, in verse 17, the writer of Hebrews instructs his readers this way, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do, do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. It is authority is exercised not as I'm, I'm the big man in charge, I'm the man in charge, you do what I say. But Christ-like authority is recognizing that I am a shepherd called the lovingly shepherd, the flock of Christ. A second way to honor them is to imitate them as they imitate the Lord. Again, in Hebrews chapter 13, and verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You want to honor somebody who works, who labors hard within the church? Imitate them. You know why some people work so hard in the church? Because they recognize a need, 
and they do it. Nobody asks them to. They see a need, and they do it. I would encourage you, as you see others doing the same thing, you do likewise. If you see a need, step in and fill it. Don't wait for someone to come along and ask you. Say, can I do this? And do it. That is a way that we honor one another. And this brings us to the second aspect of our corporate life of the believer, and that is living with with each other in the church. He writes, live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And the overarching principle here, I would say, is what, he's, what he says uh, uh, at the very beginning of this little portion, to live at peace with one another. But this carries some responsibilities to one another. And I don't have the time to go into all of it, and so I'll just very quickly going through uh, some of the thoughts here. What I would term a, a fourfold ministry of every believer And before I do, I I want to remember, uh, before I address these, I want to remember some key points. The first one is that this letter is written to believers. These are Christians to whom Paul is writing. So each of these has believers in mind. This isn't just for the elder. This isn't just for the teacher. This isn't just for the full-time worker. This is for every single one of us. And because this is for every believer and not just some, we must be willing to take these up. And just as we must be willing to practice these, we must also be willing to receive them. And finally, we must carry these out with the motivation of always seeking after that which is good for one another and for all people. So the fourfold ministry that I would suggest here of every believer He says, first, so we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Warn the unruly regarding the consequences of their behavior. The the English Standard Version renders this uh, unruly as idle. And it seemed to follow what he wrote earlier in chapter 4 in verses 11 and 12, where he wrote, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in need. And then if, as we were, if we were going to the second letter of uh, Paul's second letter, the Thessalonians in chapter 3, when he hears that some people live an undisciplined life and do no work and they act like busybodies, making everybody's business their own, he admonishes them. He says, those who don't work don't eat. He encourages them, admonishes them that they work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. I just recognized as I was going through this, I, uh, I, I put one of my points above another one, so I was a little bit lost in my notes. So, so that's the danger of working with word processors. You know, you you uh, you can move things around, but you got to remember to put them in their proper order, which I didn't do here in my notes. So um, the second one, 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those who are distressed. The third one, help the weak. And I would, I would suggest that both encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak would seem to stem from his previous comments regarding encouraging one another, regarding the gospel especially, the death, resurrection, and imminent return of the Lord. Remember how Paul encouraged those earlier in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, who were concerned about those loved ones who had died before the return of the Lord. He encouraged them. He helped those who were weak in their faith in understanding what was going to happen to those loved ones. Then the the last one, be patient with everyone. The first one, admonish one another, sometimes very difficult. Because we must constantly be aware of our own motives and practice Paul's instruction to speak the truth in love. As we admonish one another, the problem is people can be easily offended, can't they? I can be, sometimes. What are you trying to say? And as hurt people, we tend to respond from, from our hurt. And in the position of leadership, when it comes to addressing some of these things, the problem is that we run into sometimes is in our modern age, people vote with their feet. If you admonish someone, we get offended, don't we? But we have to be willing to accept that admonishment and not just say, oh, we're going somewhere else then. That's not what we're called to in the body of believers. And he says, be patient with everyone. This is so difficult, isn't it? This is, oh, so difficult. On at least a couple levels. First is the fact that we are so self-absorbed that we can easily spot the fault in others but rarely in ourselves. That's why I'm glad I'm usually alone in my car because there are a lot of dumb drivers on the road. I don't know if you'd notice it, but there, there really are a lot of dumb drivers on the road, and I am so glad that I am not one of them. <laughs> As one meme I saw recently put it, which I thought was so good, if I had thought bubbles over my head, I would be in trouble. Anybody else here relate to that? The second aspect with patience, it's patience that makes it so difficult, is how he follows this in verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. When we perceive that someone wrongs us, what is often our response, at least internally? Oh, just wait, he's going to get his. We want to retaliate in some way, don't we? Or even when someone truly wrongs us, we feel it is our right to avenge this evil that has been done to us. And this is supported and understood in our culture, isn't it? Look at the, look at the movies that are popular, the action movies that are popular. One of the common trope in in action movies is the hero who, who carries out bloody vengeance against the, the, the one or the, or the group that 
killed or, or injured his family, or in the case of, I've not watched this movie, I've only heard about this, in the case of a movie series called John Wick, a man goes on a bloody rampage because they killed his dog. They killed his dog. So he's going after people. And as I understand, a very brutal and bloody ways, and it's very popular. But this can go drastically wrong, and I was thinking about uh, a TV movie that I saw years ago. I think I was probably in junior high or high school, and uh, this involved a, a husband and wife who go on a camping trip, and while he's out hunting, uh, getting food for their meals, three men come into their campsite and attack her. They rape her. And he hears about this he, as he returns, and she's describing these men who did it to them. And with those descriptions, he goes out and he hunts down these men, kills these three men without remorse. And feeling that justice has been meted out, he goes back to the hospital where his wife is, ready to say, okay, it's okay, I got them, they're okay. Detective handling their case comes in with the news that they had captured the three men. Now, this is all fiction, but you get the point, don't you? When we take it upon ourselves to avenge, we're not in God's place, and we are not going to carry it out with the heart and mind of God. And so, therefore, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So this is the corporate life of the believer, but Paul also draws out the, the individual life of the believer. I won't spend as much time on the next three points here, and uh, before we go on, though, I would like to suggest that at least a part of what Paul has in mind here is the persecution that this church has already suffered. And without going back into all the details, if you remember, through reading the, the book of Acts, and Alex isn't there yet in his teaching on Acts. I don't think he is. I've been in Sunday school, so I don't think. I, hearing the messages, I know he hasn't been there yet. But um, in Acts chapter 17, we read about how the church in Thessalonica is planted. He goes into Europe. Uh, he's called into Europe in, in uh, chapter 16. And he spent three Sabbaths in a synagogue in Thessalonica, proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. We read how from jealousy the Jews started a near riot going out to the marketplace, bringing in, getting these, uh, uh, these good-for-nothings to come along and, and uh, stir things up. It resulted in a, a riot, and Paul and his companions were driven, were driven out of the city. And finally, concerned for their well-being, following these events, Paul sends Timothy from Athens back to Thessalonica to check on their status and to encourage them in their faith. And he wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So this is a church that is already well-versed in the violent response by some to the gospel. And he encourages them with three instructions so deeply profound in their simplicity. 
And I really don't have time to spend a whole lot of time on, on these and go into great depth. But he writes this in, in verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now before I go on, a little trivia question for you here. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Right. And wrong. In the English, it is the shortest verse in the Bible. In the Greek, however, the shortest verse in the Bible is right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, there are some that want to boil the Christian experience down to a formula. Say that if you do A plus B without doing X and Y, everything will go swimmingly for you. And this is probably as close to a formula as you're going to get in the scriptures. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. There's an old joke that I'm sure you've heard, the guy who goes to the doctor and and the doctor tells him to, uh, he needs to give up drinking, smoking, chasing women, eating fatty foods, doing all these things. And, so, and that will make me live longer? And he says, no, but it will feel longer. <laughs> we can rejoice, pray, give thanks. Is that going to make our problems go away? No. In fact, Scripture is very clear on that. You know, Christianity is one of those religions where you got to wonder, why at all would people want to come to Christianity? Listen to the words of the Lord that he gave to, to his disciples. In John chapter 16, in verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. <laughs> Sign me up. From the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus also told his disciples before he went to the cross, the world hates you because of me. They hate you. We see that especially now in our day and age, don't we? The world hates us. Trouble is going to come and there is nothing that we can do about it. What this formula, if you want to call it that, does is it throws us right to where we need to be. It throws us in to the arms of our loving God and our Savior. It throws us into the one who is greater than all the troubles the world will throw at us, and so we rejoice. We continue to pray. We give thanks in everything. Why? Because this is the Lord's will for our lives. I was recently reminded of a scene from J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, classic, The Return of the King, 
Tolkien was a believer, a contemporary, and a close friend of C.S. Lewis, and The Return of the King is the third and final installment in his Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in the story, as they are uh, battling the, the dark and evil forces of Sauron, who is threatening to take over Middle-earth, and the battle is, the war is going so poorly. And Gandalf the White is walking with Pippin, one of the hobbits uh, uh, in the story, and in the midst of this terrible darkness which was approaching, and this is what, this is what uh, Tolkien writes. And Pippin, the hobbit, glanced in some wonder at the face, now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh, and I forgot to mention, in this, Gandalf just starts laughing. He's laughing. And Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face, now so close behind close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been, gray, had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it, were it to gush forth. And while these characters are obviously fictional, one writer made the following observation about what Tolkien so massively captured in this work. And he wrote this, Pippin is learning to see deeper than surfaces, and here he sees the joy that lies deep within Gandalf's soul. This is not a joy that is an alternative to care and sorrow, but which lies deeper than the sorrow. That's what we have in Jesus Christ, isn't it? How is it that a Christian can rejoice in the darkest of circumstances? Because we have a Savior that goes far deeper than that sorrow. We have a, rela we have a relationship with the one who made us that is stronger than anything that can come against us. And so we rejoice. And so we pray. And so we give thanks in the midst of those things. And just very quickly move on to what I referred to as the dynamic life of the believer, where Paul writes, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And what I mean by the dynamic life of the believer, I, I want to address in, in two ways here. When he says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, the first is, Don't be afraid of new things. Do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit will often move in ways which we may not fully understand. Sometimes someone is going to come up with an idea on reaching people that seems so counter to what we might feel comfortable doing. We will see people, while we're singing, they might be raising their hands. It might make some of us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because I know we're in the assemblies. We don't do those kinds of things. We're more respectable than that, aren't we? In other words, don't confuse the method with the message. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul wrote that, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so I might win Jews. To those under the law as those under the law, even though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And he goes on. He says those with... Uh, the weak I became as weak, 
And he concludes, he says, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Don't be afraid of new things, but, as he writes here, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, be a Berean. Remember in Acts chapter 17, these were the ones that after hearing the gospel, they checked the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Don't confuse the method with the message, but if there is ever a method that goes against the message, steer clear of it. And finally, the power to live the Christian life in verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And again, very quickly, two points here. The first is that we are entirely sanctified, set apart by God, for God, for the work which God has called us to do until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here and now we are sanctified. Sanctified means holy, set apart. We are holy now, right now. We are holy. As Bob likes to point out, as we read in, if we read in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, where he's not afraid to call us his brethren, Bob is always quick to point out, therefore, holy brethren, we are holy. Now, that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 7. So the very thing I do, I, I, the very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do do. And it all ends up in do-do. And so that's, that's the problem that we run into in this life, isn't it? I don't feel holy, but our feelings have nothing to do with it. Rather, what does this have to say? This says if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saved, we are sanctified, set apart for him, we are holy. We are preserved in spirit, soul, and body until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings it back around to what he's been encouraging this church throughout his letter. Over and over again, he reminds them of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus in chapter 4, as he addresses the concerns regarding those who have fallen asleep, he uses this logic. Jesus died, and he rose again. Therefore, if he rose again, then he will return. And when he returns, then we will be reunited with him at his coming, and so we will be with the Lord always. In his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, he wrote this, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have, what I have entrusted to him until that day. If we say we can lose our salvation, then we are calling God a liar because we are saying he wasn't able to keep what he promised until that day. And then the second point here is the faithfulness of God. We are entirely sanctified, set apart for him. 
kept for his day because God is faithful. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And again in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul wrote this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What gives us the power to live this Christian life? It is because Jesus Christ died and rose again. And he has promised to keep us until he comes. And so let us live our lives in light of that wonderful, indispensable, costly grace. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that grace that is so deeper than anything that this, that this world may throw at us. Help us to live our lives in light of that grace, knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us. That we would do likewise, forgiving one another, being patient with one another, encouraging, even admonishing one another for the sake of helping one another to become more and more like his son. We thank you that that power is not ours, but it is through the Holy Spirit. May we honor the Lord Jesus in how we live. We ask in his own name. Amen.